0: hey everybody welcome to season two of the Mixmasters masters podcast i'm your host steve litcher and for those not familiar i'm the touring front of house engineer for stitched up heart working with stitched up heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people and i wanted to introduce you to them i wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences this is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business i have to give a huge shout out to my pal merritt goodwin for this killer intro music merritt is the lead guitarist for stitched up heart and he's also an extremely talented composer give him a follow on facebook at merritt goodwin or on instagram at merritt goodwin official now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of mixmasters podcast welcome to mixmasters 2021 You may recall that when we ended things in 2020, I wasn't quite certain if we would have new episodes in 2021, but an opportunity presented itself, and I was able to sit down and talk with Drew Sullivan. Drew is the front-of-house engineer for bands like We Came as Romans and Crown the Empire. He's also a system engineer, and if that weren't enough, he also works in studios. He does uh, corporate speaking engagements, live touring, and uh, works with some houses of worship in his area. So when it comes to sound, Drew has done it all, seen it all, and knows pretty much everything. So this was a really fun discussion because we got to dive into the weeds on various topics around uh, system engineering and measurements and all that fun stuff. We also talked, you know, touring stories and experiences with the bands that we work with. And then Drew's also a gear junkie, which I absolutely love. And he's been playing around with Behringer's new wing mixer. So if you want to learn a little bit about that, Be sure to give a listen. So, without any further ado, enjoy this episode, and we may or may not see you with additional episodes in 2021. We'll just see how things play out. So, until then, enjoy and talk to you soon. Hey, everybody, welcome to Mixmasters 2021. I am joined tonight by Drew Sullivan, and uh, some of you may be very familiar with Drew, others may not, but we're looking forward to chatting with him and getting to know him a little bit better. We'll talk all sorts of gig stuff we'll talk all sorts of technology stuff but before we do that drew i want to say thank you for joining and how are you doing uh i'm doing pretty
1: good uh i'm super stoked to be here and you know uh i've listened on the podcast a couple times uh you know as we kind of discussed a little bit before uh, this um i've had a couple buddies on here and, and you know just uh really excited what you're doing and uh what you're bringing to uh this time and this place of like this lockdown and, you know, yeah, I'm super stoked. So Cool.
0: Well, I will definitely Venmo you that 20 bucks for that uh, little promo. So thank you very much. That endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. All right. Well, um, so I know of you. I follow you on Facebook. We're sort of, you know, friends. I'm using air quotes on Facebook, even though we haven't had a chance to hang out in person. But can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, how did you get started in music? Are you a musician at heart? I'm going to admit I've spied on your, uh, Facebook photos and I, I believe I've seen some orange, uh, guitar equipment in the background of certain things. And, uh, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, when did you first find music and, you know, where did you go from there? And let's, uh, kick it off that way.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, um so music um i grew up in a musical family my grandmother played uh bluegrass and gospel music growing up i'm from kentucky uh, central kentucky specifically so you know it's a very deep-rooted thing with my family Uh, my grandmother She sang, she played mandolin, upright bass uh, and guitar. Um, And then her husband played uh, banjo and they sang. And then I grew up around a lot of the um, bluegrass musicians from Central Kentucky, like J.D. Crowe and the New South uh, and um, Tony Rice and all those kind of cats. And I was lucky to kind of be exposed to a really fantastic musical upbringing uh, early on I uh, started playing trumpet uh, in fourth grade um, as you know an introductory to music type of thing as one does um, and then I discovered rock music um, in fifth grade uh, sticks and kiss um, my buddy down the street um, you know uh, his dad listened to that kind of stuff and he had a, uh, some rip CD which was just a bunch of kiss and sticks and some Def Leppard and stuff like that and just kind of it spoke to me. Uh, and then from there I was just like, I want to play guitar cause this is the best thing ever. Um, and then my grandmother was super supportive of that. Um, we started out with acoustic guitar lessons. Um, and then from there, you know, I got my first electric guitar, um, classic Squire, black Stratocaster like many kids started out with, and then I moved up from there. Um, and then, um, you know played that through middle school i uh, was really into rock and metal everything from van halen to yngwie malmsteen to play my god and avenge sevenfold all that kind of stuff you know very classic of my upbringing in the mid to late 2000s um and then eighth grade um my mother actually passed away uh going into um, my ninth grade year uh and then coincidentally i had left kentucky to go stay with her brother my uncle at the time and then me and my best friend that also played guitar needed to get demos back and forth and you know the need brought up a um a situation where i had to record guitar demos to get back to him Uh, and then from there i just caught a really big spark in audio uh as you know serendipitously that that did happen and then um i started out With my digitech rp500 and my headphones recording into a logic desktop mic into audacity in 2000 late 2008 early 2009 uh get into high school meet up a couple other buddies musicians uh friends we start bands Uh, i start interning at studios when i'm 14 years old uh, in central kentucky Um, go through high school playing recording uh in the local hardcore music scene Um, And then out of that time, the later part of high school, I start going down to Nashville, start working out of studios in Nashville. And then uh, by the time I'm uh, 18, uh, I start working for a studio in Lexington, Kentucky called Nitrosonic Studios. I started working for them and was the head engineer there for about two years. I left there to kind of refocus my life and try to uh, find some other stuff maybe that if music wasn't right in my early 20s Uh, so I left um, there I'd worked at Guitar Center coincidentally between there and the studio and then um, I briefly stepped away from music for a little over six months Uh, and then I actually ended up getting the house position for a another studio in Lexington, a privately owned facility called Broken Crow Studios. Um, I'd worked for uh, them and the producer, Kevin Elliott, for a year and a half. Um, and then uh, jointly with that, I was also working for a church, a uh, large, larger mega church in my area called Quest Community Church at the time. And that was kind of my first introduction to live sound. And I'll kind of touch back on that. Um, and then from there, um a buddy of mine uh david puckett joined the church uh if anybody knows david puckett you know big shout out to him he's one of my favorite people in the entire world uh he drummed for the band for today um after the original drummer had left uh they completed their world farewell tour he had moved to lexington to be close to family and he uh was uh just checking out local churches Uh, he joined our church um and then about two, um, two different Sundays, he'd played on the worship team on the second time he played on a worship team. You know, I went to go say hi to him and uh, introduce myself, I kind of knew who he was. And, um, you know, he asked me what I had plans for, uh, for some dates. And I was like, well, I'm pretty open available. I've got stuff here. But you know, what's what's the deal? And he asked me if I wanted to go out and um, do front of house for a band called We Came as Romans. Um, I had heard of them before, um, you know, growing up in the hardcore music scene. You know, they're one of the bigger bands, uh, so I knew who they were. I, of course, said yes, of course. Um, and then that got me into touring sound. Uh, touring sound led me into system teching and um, engineering and everything that I've been kind of doing up to this point um and then i was with we came as romans for a couple of years um and then i'd left them to work for a band called uh crown the empire and then i've been with them um for the about 2019 start of 2019 uh, and of course we didn't really do much touring last year and uh but uh luckily the guys had me uh mix their uh Acoustic reimagined album for the ten year anniversary, and I had that come out, and then that's kind of placed me to where I am current day. And that was a lot of information, so, but that's kind of my whole spiel.
0: Yeah, you've lived a full life in the first probably you know quarter of what is your actual life, so that's pretty amazing. That's uh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to talk about man, I don't even know where to begin because there's so much great information that you shared there. So you started out in the studio. What shocked you the most when you made the leap from the studio world into the live world? Like where, where were you left sort of like, you know, your jaw was open and you were like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? Or did you instantly love the live side?
1: It's a really great question. Um, so coming from the studio my end goal has always been to make really cool music make really cool records or shows whatever you know i just want to make good music or be a part of good music that touches people i think that's a why a lot of us get into the music industry to begin with um live versus studio um some of my first live experiences was doing like southern revivals in my area and it was uh, really interesting because I'd be thrown in these outdoor fields in the middle of summer, with uh, JBL PRX like 15s for tops, single dual 18 subs, poles on sticks type of thing. Uh, luckily, no analog board at the time, so I did have like compression on every channel and some like you know decent sounding effects. Um, but it was uh, it was getting out to this. You know, PA, that's not a studio monitor. So you have to make it sound good. It just doesn't come out of the box sounding like it should, you know, I mean, as anybody that's a system tech, uh, understands it doesn't matter if it's an L acoustics or a DMB, or if it's a JBL on a stick, you know, you've got to make, do some work to get it there. Um, and so the biggest shock was coming from like a very tuned uh, and some of the best rooms that I've ever worked out of even to this day, um, super linear, super flat, uh, very little echo or any of that kind of stuff. And then going and getting thrown into this box that just is not translating. Um, so I think that was a big, uh, the biggest thing for me. Uh, but it was also a challenge and it just made me want to get better. Um, and that's something that even though I love mixing, I've actually gotten a system teching over the past couple of five years. And um, I super enjoy doing that. Uh, and I think it's a big key part of being a live engineer is knowing how a speaker works and how to get it to be a reference level. Um, I think Pooch actually um, speaks in that in his class, if you know him from Iron Maiden and all that kind of stuff. So um, he, uh, very similar philosophies I found out. So, but uh, but yeah, I think it's just the, the difference of the PA being not a, like a studio monitor and then me trying to get it to be a studio monitor. So that was my biggest like hurdle. And then when you, when I got there, I just, it kind of clicked, you know what I mean? And it was super fun. So
0: yeah, it's definitely a rush going to the, the live sound uh, side of things. And I mean, recording has its, its ups and downs also, but when you, uh, get into the live and, and like Pooch says, you know, you, when you move a fader and tons of people start screaming, it's sort of like a little adrenaline boost that, that becomes pretty addictive pretty quickly as you're probably aware.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, if there's 20,000 fans screaming and going and making the, the floor rattle, I'm, I'm having a great time.
0: Oh, how can you not? Uh, I want to go back to the system tech comment real quickly. So is your preference when you're system teching or mixing to have, uh, as flat of a PA response as you possibly can? Or what, how do you approach setting up your PA if you're you know, system teching, let's say?
1: So my approach is to get it to be a uh, as close to a reference as need be. And then from there, I will add in non-linearities to this, the overall balance of the system so my goal is to get all the crossover points of every box uh from the high driver high mid mid low mid low driver and to the subs you know because we have up to five drivers and crossover points in a large format system is to get every one of those balanced where the crossover if i'm using like a um, fft like a smart or uh, anything like that to get where I cannot see the crossover jump and get that as smooth from the crossover balance gain structurally. Uh, and then from there I'll use EQ and filtering to get it even further smooth. And then I'll actually adjust the levels of the main PA sectors. So, um, the subs versus the left, right. Uh, and I'll balance Usually I like the, the main left, right to be fairly flat with a little bit of gradual dip off starting around 10 K uh, just by about three DB all the way up to about 18. Uh, and it just rolls off from there pretty h- harshly because it's just how live speakers work, um, and the throw of them. Uh, and then the low end where the subs kick in, I usually have it balanced where I have plus six DB of headroom versus where the, uh, low end of the main PA kicks in. So basically fairly flat, little gentle roll off in the very top end and a little bit extra, um, little bit extra butt in the bass, you know what I mean? Um, and that seems to be work for most things uh, from rock to CCM to uh, hip hop, uh, unless I'm doing like dubstep or something that's got a ton of ton of low end, uh, then you might need a little bit more headroom in the subs. But generally, it's um, get it fairly flat and then just make it where top end doesn't hurt my ears. And then I have plenty of low end headroom. So, you know.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That I appreciate that extra insight there. Uh and you mentioned smart is that your uh measurement tool of choice?
1: Uh yeah, basically uh um you know I have uh, smart's pretty much I'd say the industry standard. There's some other options out there, uh you know, everything uh from iPad apps to other FFTs, uh, but I generally I like smart, it's what I'm trained in. Um, and then, um, it makes the most sense for me of how it's laid out. I think, um, the people over rational acoustics do a fantastic job on their software. It's pricey, but it's worth every penny. So
0: I totally agree. And I've taken the smart class, um, on a couple of the different versions. I think my first one was version seven and then I took version eight just as a refresher, but man, that tool is powerful. But if you don't understand it, you can definitely work yourself into a corner pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, you can, uh, if you don't understand, and that's why I think like, uh, you know, there's a lot of engineers nowadays, it's perfectly fine, but they don't understand the technical aspect of stuff. But I think um, there's only so much you can go through the dark on, you know, pushing knobs until it sounds good before you get yourself in those holes. And I think smart is one of those tools where if you don't know it, you will definitely get into a little bit of a black hole.
0: (laughs) How many uh, measurement mics do you usually use when you're system teching? I suppose it depends on the gig, but if you just had to, you know, average it out, are you a, a single mic guy, multiple mics? Uh, it
1: really depends on the gig. Uh, most gigs I can get away with, unless I'm in an arena, um, most gigs or like a very uh, large, like uh, like a convention hall. Uh, usually I'm just the one mic kind of guy and I'll just move the mic where I need to, if I need to move it. Um, But if I'm doing multiple delays and there's so if I'm like in a convention hall and doing uh, like a corporate setup and I've got a main, a mid and a back delay of my PA to cover that because those halls are just nothing but like 10 seconds of reverb. Um, So you have to have lots of little Um little, um, stacks of speakers, um, uh, in the array clusters, and you have to have multiple delays for those places to sound good. I'll usually try to bring at least two or three in those situations. Uh, and same thing with an arena, you know, we got a side bank fill, we've got front fills, subs, subs flown up, and then, you know, one at front of house. So, I uh, you usually try to carry three for an arena.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Um, and last sort of totally in the weeds question about system measurement, just because I've, this is something that, uh, I followed for a long time and I don't know if there's a right or a wrong answer, but I'm always curious when you place your mic for measurement, do you place it really close to the floor to avoid any sort of like, you know, ground bounce or where do you, or do you place it at your level or what are you usually looking for in terms of mic placement?
1: So a lot of people I found can be a little bit dogmatic about that. I'm personally, uh, I'm just trying to get the cleanest measurement. So if I'm on my FFT, And if I'm on the floor and I cannot read phase, the floor is not doing it for me. And clearly there's a lot of of reflections happening. Um, The floor can work in um, less um, reverberant spaces, I find. So places with carpets, places with some type of treatment, really good arenas. Um, But a lot of times you're not in those really great places. You can be in sheds with outdoor noise and stuff like that in weird architecture where there's lots of bouncing. So sometimes I'll put it at mid height near my waist. And then sometimes, you know, it might be ear level. Uh, and if I'm using it more as a, um, uh, after I've already dialed the PA in and I'm using it to monitor the seismograph aspect and I'm using it to uh, for the uh, RTA function, I'll usually have it around ear level because that's what I want to measure off of because that's generally what I'm hearing, so. that's the most important part is what I'm hearing, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love it. The dogmatic comment was probably the most accurate thing I've ever heard when describing that uh, debate that takes place because people certainly do seem to be, you know, tied to their preferred methods. But I love that you adjust it based on the environment and the situation. That's really smart. And it just, you know, reinforces what everybody has said about you, that you're uh, a a technique, not a technician, but like uh, very uh, tactical and very precise with things. So that's that's. Cool. Uh,
1: Well, that's super humbling. And uh, yeah, well, thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, my pleasure. Um, Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your uh, the live sound uh, musical acts that you work with. So you mentioned uh, We Came as Romans and Crown the Empire. Um, Definitely heavier bands, style of music that I love. Uh, Oh, my gosh, I love it so much. I do find that when I'm mixing, you know, the heavier bands like that, where you've got multiple drop tune guitars and whatnot, that it's really challenging for me to keep my mix clean, especially in the low mid frequency area. What do you, how do you go about approaching your mix for a group like uh crown, the empire, um, you know, to, to make sure that everything stays clean and, you know, intelligible, but still has that power and that, like, you know, that sour sound that I like to describe it as.
1: For sure, man. Um, so it, everybody's probably heard this before plenty of times but it's it still always starts with the source i mean in the end of the day if it's the drums not tuned correctly and the player's not hitting the the thing you know it's it's not it's never going to sound great uh same thing with guitar bass or any of that stuff uh and i think as an engineer you need to be you need to also be a guitar tech you need to be a bass tech you need to be a drum tech um, you know, I've worked with a lot of great techs out there and I've picked up stuff from them over the years from the studio and live, but in the end of the day, like I know where I want the drums to sound and I know I can go up to my drum tech, talk with him on his level and explain what I'm looking for. And if he is not hundred percent getting that, I know I can show him where to get it. You know what I mean? So I think that's something that's super important is knowing, um, how to get the source material good. Uh, I know with a lot of bands, um, Crown. Um, uh, I have a stack of amps behind me, um, building profiles for your artists that work with their stuff. Because sometimes the album tones that they they use on their Kemper's can be a little bit too overbaked for live, uh, a little too much gain, a little too much um, hair, and maybe a little too uh, scooped in the low mids. You know, sometimes you need it there, so you can take it away, and you can dictate it night to night sometimes. Uh, so you know i think building appropriate tones for guitars uh using the correct size uh strings and making sure the guitar tech knows that type of stuff uh i know working at like club levels sometimes we hire on guys that are greener to the field um you know just making sure that you're you can keep them accountable and you know make sure that the source tone is really great i think that's always number one um and then besides that you know having good taste i think is the uh the ultimate deciding factor like you know i think the old again i'll say dogmatic i love that uh using that uh throwing out that term in the audio world but the dogmatic term turn the knob till it sounds good uh is a very uh very dogmatic term because you have to have a uh, you have to know what sounds good you have to have taste you have to have this you know understanding of where you're going to get it there you know what i mean so Um, If the source tone's good and you have the right taste, you know, you can use redactive EQ, additive EQ, I don't care what the approach is, as long as it sounds good, you know what I mean? Um, So I think those are the two big factors into that. And like, if you're dealing with heavy tuned stuff, like... You know guitars seven or eight string you know sometimes yes there are hitting fundamental notes in 80 90 hertz but sometimes you just don't need it because the bass is still hitting that stuff so you know high pass up to 100 hertz high pass up to 150 if you have to because sometimes those guitars have they have to be clean they have to not be muddy um, get them out of the way of the bass let the bass guitar do the bass stuff from the low mids all the way down to that first uh, little bit of fundamental into the sub octave let the drums dictate with uh, the subs uh, the sub octave for the kick drum keep it out of the way and you know just make sure everything has its place in the audio spectrum and then you know i think those are big three big key points of if i'm approaching something that's how i'd approach it
0: i love it you know the comment about the high passing uh that's something and i'm sure that everybody listening to this podcast is aware of this but i'll state the obvious and then everybody can make fun of me afterwards but uh it's what I found when you high when you say high pass at you know 150. It doesn't mean that everything below 150 is going to just be absent. There is a, a roll off, and like on the D Live, I can adjust the slope and also the modeling of my high pass. So I can you know do a Butterworth, I can do a Linkwitz-Riley, you know I can set the octave that it rolls off. So just because if anybody's listening out there and they're like, "Oh, I would never dream of, you know, losing everything below 150 on a, on a seven string or an eight string guitar, you won't lose it. You'll uh, you'll shape it, you know, or, or uh, tame it a little bit. So.
1: Yeah. And, and on the other end of that, like, if you're afraid of losing it, use a low shelf at 150 hertz just to turn everything down, high pass at 80 or a hundred. Uh, if you're afraid of high passing that high, you know, there's ways around it. Uh, that's just my approach. Uh, some people's approach to it, but I, I definitely think like what you're talking about. If uh, six dB per octave high pass, you know, uh, cornerstone at 150, you know, six dB at um was it 70 hertz, 75 hertz? Yeah, 75 hertz. uh Math, <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, Uh 75 hertz is just going to be six dB lower. Everything under that you, uh, and above that is, you know, still going to be fairly audible to the uh, relative dynamic range of the mix you know what i mean
0: so. yeah yeah you're just sort of bringing everything back into check and that's that's a great point so yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as crown uh i love their music i don't know a ton about them uh, because i don't see any of the videos really i just I, I listen uh you know to the mp3s and and everything on my uh, ipod but are they modeling amplifiers are they using live uh heads and cabinets or what's the what's the setup like there
1: so since I've been with them, um, so it's, um, Kemper easiest way to put it. Uh, so Brandon, uh, Brandon uses a Kemper. Uh, he, he, has his own tones, um, you know, that are suited for live music and so forth. Uh, and then because they did have a previous guitarist, um, that uh, once he had left i think it was like 2016 or 2017 also with the previous uh screamer dave uh, I, I i'm not familiar with their super far back past i've worked with them for like i said so i think the start of 2019 was my first tour with them um but you know they use a kemper and then we use some backing track guitars to fill in some of the stuff when like brandon has a, like a solo or something like that so yeah you know just normal metal stuff. Um, and then I've worked with tons of bands. It's usually Kemper or Axe Effects. uh, very rarely do you, uh, and at least with heavy music nowadays, it's very rarely, it's a, a real amp unless you're a high profile, A or B level artist.
0: Uh, I'm the same way stitched apart is, uh, Merritt uses Kemper. He's got his own tones, although he uses primarily his recording tones live. And we did start working on that towards the end of touring in 2019. And then, you know, we haven't had a chance to really play around with it. But yeah, they, the the whole band is Kemper, and then we have uh, some playback for exactly like you said, you know, filling in the gaps when Merritt's hitting a solo and there's a an underlying rhythm that needs to be there. The that's where the playback comes in, and I think you know more people do it than don't these days. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, I love technology. Uh, <laughs> also speaking about the the Kemper and the the A or B level, you know, touring acts with live cabinets man i do not miss like the coffin cabinets and uh the speaker in a box and or like the the guy that rolls into a small club with his 412 100 watt head insists on it being you know at seven or eight for the tone and you're like oh yeah thank you so much
1: yeah uh i don't unless i was in arena you don't you don't need 100 you don't need 100 watt and even at that level like it's pointing towards the back of the arena and to the curtain <laughs> and then I'm micing it. So yeah, you know, it's not 1968 and Jimi Hendrix, you know what I mean? We don't need 10 Marshall stacks to make the guitar tone heard. I love I love Kemper. Uh it's the greatest thing to happen to rock touring and live sound, even more so than the studio. It's just it's freaking awesome because I don't have to have amps on stage. I have drums and vocals.
0: Well, and you get so much more consistency too, you know, like um, back in my really early days of doing live sound and I was working with these bands that were playing around the Midwest, you know, the the head and the cabinet would sit out in a cold trailer and then we'd bring it into the venue and then you'd literally hear it change its sound as it got acclimated and then, you know, it would get real warm and humid and muggy inside of these clubs, you know, when you throw a couple hundred people in them and the tone would change again you don't have that with a camper. and I just love the predictability and uh, consistency of the camper stuff.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. It makes our jobs, I think a thousand times easier uh, in the best way possible because it allows us to focus on other aspects and not chase down the same guitar tone because you can tape the cabinet and the position use the same mics and it's still just night to night, man, especially if you're on club tours, it's just not going to be the same. And it's one of those things I'm glad that we as a collective uh, usually don't have to deal with very much anymore. Um, And it's fine to use real amps. I love real amps. I have like 10 grand sitting right behind me of real amps. I love them. Um, But for the the touring folk out there, touring guitarists, buy a Kemper at Axe FX. It's awesome. Just do it. Uh They play... 90% there. And if it's 90% there for live, it's gonna be great.
0: Your back will thank you as well because you're you're hauling around a lunchbox versus you know, however many dozens of pounds a head is and you know, fifty or sixty pounds of for a cabinet.
1: Oh, hundred percent. Uh speaking of that, lugging around cabinets, my first tour with B car, we had a full backline of dummy cabs that were loaded. So they still, and with road cases, so they weighed, you know, 125 pounds a piece. And we had four, or four by twelves, two, two by, or four, two by twelves and two, eight by 10 cabs, base cabs uh, that we carried around and they were just dummies and we used campers. Uh and, you know, it's, uh, my back definitely does not miss those days.
0: <laughs> I told this story on the, on an earlier podcast, but I'll repeat it again. I, I was lucky enough to work with a band, uh, in early 2020, just a one night, uh, gig out in uh, California and they are, they are sponsored by a, uh, a amplifier company and their whole stage is lined, you know, stage left, stage right with four by 12 cabinets, two high heads and everything. And you're just like, oh my God, these guys, you know, are monsters every one of those cabinets was empty and every one of those heads had nothing in it other than an led oh, and they're all, all playing through kempers right behind the the stacks but at least they were smart that they had unloaded cabinets you know so they literally were you know like barely heavier than the cardboard box that they were in well,
1: that's always good uh unload is definitely the way to go if the, any artist is going that way with the cap look uh, yeah i don't know if you ever, ever run into them but uh jackal The 80s hair metal band they carry they all their cabinets and the road cases probably weigh 250 pounds uh and they carry a full like truckload of them it's it's something else
0: yeah we we um one of my buddies um in wisconsin here has a a fairly large production company and we we did the racks and stacks and pa for them for a casino um oh man i don't even remember what year it was but at the time they showed up they unloaded all their equipment they had more PA for their monitor system than we had at front of house. like.
1: And they carry uh, those old sure PAs as loud as all it could get out, man. I mean, I don't, the heavy uh, AB style
0: amps that weigh like 80 pounds, they're just tear your head off. They were all Crown Macrotech 3600s, yeah. and they had two, no, three uh, 16U, cases full of crown amps just for their uh, monitor system (laughs) like oh my goodness
1: that's awesome but
0: man they're they're fun i i oh they're so fun i love those guys there
1: yeah
0: it's just pure rock and roll um okay well we'll get out of uh memory lane here and talk a little bit more about equipment so when it comes to consoles i i also uh was stalking you and saw that you were working on a, a wing but uh what is, do you carry a console these days? And if so, you know, you want to talk a little bit about your front of house rig?
1: Yeah, so um for me, I've pretty much carried minus of some form or factor since starting live sound. Um, you know, I've carried a pro two C for the better part of almost six years at this point. Um with We Came as Romans, I carried a Pro 1. Um just for portability and they owned the console. So, you know, I didn't have to rent one. Um, and then for crown, we've been rocking an M 32 in the States. And then I just, you know, I, uh, we, our last tour was in Southeast Asia and Japan. So I just used house consoles. Uh, I did get one Midas. Uh, so yay. Um, but normally, um, if the band has the budget for it, you know, I'll ask for a pro series console. Um, if not, if they have any more of a budget, you know, a Digico or an SSL. Um, I also love the D live stuff too. So, um, uh, I, I don't personally own a console right now. I've just, I've weighed all the options. Um, uh, it just depends on, of course, who I'm working with in the future. And, um, if I want to invest in that, cause it is a hefty investment, um, you know it could range for anywhere as much as a new car to a, a new house <laughs> and then um yeah as you saw I, I i've been working since home for a a um a um can't think um for a church startup and uh they've uh they own a Beringer wing uh so i i'm assuming one of the few guys that have gotten to actually mix on a wing kind of consistently over the past like two months Uh, So uh, it's awesome. Um, As I've told a couple of people, uh, give it a DL251 and give me a wing right now and I'll take it over Pro Series. Really? Yeah, 100%. Uh, Because the sound is from the preamps and the output section. Um, So give me the 251 for my ins and my outs on stage um and even if uh even if i got a pull outset from a house you know i've got AES that can go into a, a lake so you know no conversion loss uh a lot of people will be like it's only 48k um the only advantage for 96 is round trip latency period um fidelity it's double it's same thing as recording at 44.1 or 48k it's more than double the nyquist theorem so you just can't hear it. And especially on a large format PA, they start rolling off at 16,000 kilohertz. When you hit 20, you're like negative 12 dB. Anyways, you're just not going to hear it. It doesn't matter. The oral senses, um, for upper register stuff, it's, it's you're lying to yourself. So <laughs> that's how I, that's how I feel about it. The science backs it up. Um, the Behringer wings really s- super awesome. Uh, 16 DCA faders, um stereo or mono groups auxes channels or anything so i could have 56 channels and a whole set of those as stereo rocking on the 48 channels of the board and it doesn't count against me same thing with my outs i could rock 16 stereo outs on in-ears for my auxes if i wanted to use it as a monitor console um off the 16 buses i still have eight matrices i still have four stereo master outs Um, And the effects sound really good. I've been using their uh, Lexicon um, PCM96, the blue one, the older ones, but not the LX480s. Um, I've been using that on my lead vocal and it's just sparkly. Uh, It sounds great. Um, So they're awesome. I really do highly recommend them, especially for younger touring guys that can uh, take out a Digico or DLive or what have you.
0: Yeah, I'd heard the routing was really, you know, spectacular on them, but I didn't realize that you had so much leeway or, you know, editorial license uh, or capacity. I guess capacity is the better word there with all of your mix engines and everything like that. That's if I have one minor complaint about the D Live, I wish it had more mix engines because you know, by the time you throw a bunch of uh, matrices out there and a bunch of stereo oxes. You know in in groups you're you start to run out of headroom for uh for your mix groups so i mean i love the d live i i will carry one to my grave <laughs> but i uh that's alan and heath if you're listening more mix engines please that'd be awesome
1: i've only got to mix with the d live a handful of times uh they're super amazing consoles and for the 15 to 20 $35,000 price range that they fall within I think they are the best solution as of right now hands down period
0: yeah I, I think they definitely hit above their weight class um you know but there are you there are compromises I mean definitely you can't compare it to like the the 6l or you know other you know mega dollar boards but it does pretty well for the the class it's in as does the wing I mean the wing is you know relatively reasonable so that's uh sounds like it's a winner
1: yeah i think the new uh thanks music drive uh price change um is 2800 for the us 27.99 or
0: 28.99 yeah
1: um i like i said i'd take it over a pro series with a deal if i have a dl 251 any day um just because it hits up in that market and above it you know uh i don't think there's really you could have maybe the eventus would be your next step up at ten thousand, uh and even then you know it's like it's compromising the d live stuff you know so i think uh it's like 2800 until you get to like twenty thousand dollar budget for a proper d live setup it's very much uh it's a hard thing we'll see what uh midas comes out uh if they drop a heritage HD ninety six like slim version or whatever, um, I think I've seen photos in the field of a, like a touchscreen only version. So we'll see how that uh,
0: that pops out. I haven't seen that yet, so I'll have to go do a little investigating because I uh, yeah I the M thirty two you know I it, it carries a soft spot in my heart also, but the the you talk about limitations you know four FX sends total or four FX engines I guess I should say that was just a deal breaker for me and uh, the limited compression modeling and things like that. But I mean, for its price point, M32, X32 are fantastic. But I also, the what you mentioned about the the wing is really interesting that you can use the DL 251, 151, 153, blah, 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 the, the pro series uh, stage boxes, because I don't believe, maybe a couple of guys have gotten that to work with the M32, but for the most part, you're sort of stuck with the Midas DL 32, I think, and and you know that's as high as you're gonna get.
1: So the DL two fifty one, uh, and then I think the two fifty two, the one twenty-four, um, the basically the mic splitter version, uh, that's twenty-four in, uh, twenty-four out. Um, and then the one fifty-two, one fifty-one, one fifty-three three all work with XM and wing versions because they have an internal drop down clock sync. So you can drop it from 96 to 48. I actually, uh, when I went to Europe last with, uh, I was working for WeCar at the time. Um, we literally just took the DL 251 stage box and took it over with us and rented an M32 and I actually just basically built a identical show file as close as possible. On uh, the M32 is my US uh, Pro Series, and I have my same preamp, so it was 90% the same mix, minus the kind of lackluster compression on the N32 X32 format. Um, that's my biggest gripe. I don't know. Um, it does. It seems it's kind of like the M7 with the M and X32, where it seems no matter if you have it on 20 milliseconds or 10 milliseconds is still kind of grabby in a weird way. You know, it's, it reminds me of the uh, M7CL compression a little bit, but a nicer version of it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I love the, the comparisons that you draw, uh, cause that's actually 1000% accurate. So I totally agree. Talking about your lead vocal, what are you guys using for a microphone for Crown?
1: Uh, Crown right now, uh, I do believe it's an 835. It's nothing special. Um, uh you know i've used everything from ks 9s the neumann stuff uh recently with some ccm artists and um you know sometimes just an 835 or a sm57 works um i think with andy moving forward i'm going to try to get him something that's a little less prone to proximity effect is the only thing with the 835 they had them before i uh, started working with them and with corona and everything kind of falling within not having, uh, you know, only worked from a a little over a year uh, by the time Corona happened touring stopped. So, you know, with that being said, I think moving forward, I'm going to try to find a different mic capsule for him. Um, Suggestions are always welcome. If anybody ever wants to send me anything, Um, I'm looking at uh, DPA and uh, no, I I think that's great. I've used um, um, M80s on him before. particularly doesn't work with his voice because he has uh kind of that proximity effect and 80 has a boost around 200 hertz it's pretty uh i think it's like 0.6 db per octave Q type of thing works great on a snare drum uh not on a, a voice with proximity effect problems uh because it's just bumping the low mid up and it just makes them sound too muffled and i had to knock like 15 db uh out at like 250 so but um yeah i've tried a couple things but right now it's just the 835 and the Sennheiser uh, wireless body, um, into a EW, I think it's the 100s, the G3s. It's where the nicer end of the Sennheiser wireless mics are for the G3s.
0: I will, I have some experience with the DPA uh, 2088. I think it is the, the vocal capsule. I bought it for Mixie from stitched up heart because she loves to cup the mic And, uh, she's also, you know, the screamy, uh, growly, uh, but then she's also, you know, really high up in, in the frequency range and our, uh, our drummer plays very loud. And so I was looking for something that would really reject off access noise and the DPA, you know, fit every one of those criteria on my checklist. And I gave it to her in a rehearsal and she hated it. She didn't like how it felt. And she didn't like how it sounded in her ears. And I I shed a tear and then gave her 58 back and she was happy. And, you know, as long as the artist is happy, I'm I'm happy. But I really had high hopes for that 2088 because I was like, this is the thing that's going to answer all of my prayers and all of my problems. And it lasted about seven minutes. And then we were swapping the, the capsule out.
1: Oh, that's awesome. I'm sorry. I feel your pain, but that's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, F6, C6 then, I guess. <laughs> really tight tight uh, time constraints. Um, yeah, I'm hoping with Andy, um, kind of talking like what you were saying, um, you know, he's a, he's a, he cups the mic and he moves his hand position a ton because he's a very active performer. I mean, the truest sense of the, the word, he is a showman. Uh, which is what I love about working with the crown guys is every one of them is just so dedicated and so there to put on the show and the theatrics, which is, I I, I'm honestly so excited for when we get back to touring to uh, show the world what we have in store. Um, So it's, I think it's gonna be really sick, but yeah, I think uh, my biggest trick with um, uh, singers that do that is, so I, I did it with Dave and Kyle uh, rest in peace from B car. Um, I put a piece of yellow, bright yellow gaff tape around the middle or right around the, the, where the grill meets the other part of the grill on the microphone. And then I cover it with a piece of black gaff. So just the first little bit of sliver of yellow is right. Uh, facing the vocalist, And then I tell the guys, if you see ye- your hand go over the yellow, move it back so they can still get a good grip on it. But they're not cupping the, the whole diaphragm and changing the polar pattern too much. And um, so that's, that's a little trick that's helped me out with artists that cup too much and ch- change their hands positions too much. Um, I wish everybody was a pop artist. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, just a little trick to try. Uh, hopefully when we get back out there for anybody.
0: Have you played around with the uh, SE V7 at all?
1: I haven't, I've heard nothing but good stuff about them. Uh, from what I've checked out, it's, they sound like 58s and 57s, but with a little bit nicer side uh, off axis uh, tonality to them, which I'm all about any mic that does that.
0: Yeah. I, um, I started using the V7 right after it first came out. I live very close to full compass and I was talking to my rep uh, from full compass. Who's a good friend. And he was like, hey, you gotta check out this V7 from this company called SE. And um, so he gave me a capsule to demo with this uh regional band that I was working with, and I instantly like fell in love with it. Uh gain before feedback is insane. It rejects the the off-access noise, polar pattern's really pretty tight on it. And then I think it sounds a little more uh what's the word I'm looking for? It's not more open. Yeah, maybe a little bit more open than like a 58. You know, a 58 has a very uh, 58 sound and I know I'm speaking sort of in uh, platitudes. I just don't, I can't find the words to describe it, but yeah, the, the V seven, especially for the price point, I think you can get a wireless capsule uh, for sure for like just over a hundred bucks. And I'm guessing that Sennheiser is, you know, right there as well.
1: Yeah. Like I said, I've heard nothing but good things about the, um, the SE stuff. Uh, I use their overheads right now for the church I'm working for. I don't know which model, but it's kind of like their 414 knockoff. Uh, And they honestly, they sound fantastic. I've done some post mixes uh, and they're as good as, most things out there. I'd take a KSM 32 over them, but that's just cause I like sure mics and I like the sound, but their SE seems to be putting out some really great products. Uh, I know, uh, Drew, uh, Thornton, Billy's engineer. Um, he is SE on Billy's voice, uh, the V seven and, uh, a lot of the mics on the drums too.
0: Oh, that's a great segue. What are you doing for drums with, uh, with, uh, crown?
1: Uh, so the kick is a trigger, uh, so we're using a rolling trigger and then I usually place a kick out mic on them just for like some, um, I, I wanna capture some of the real dynamics of the kick drum. So I blend uh, usually a D6, I just throw it on the outside just uh, in uh, right inside the porthole as an out mic. Uh, and then I blend that in with the trigger. Um, luckily the trigger latency lines up with the out mic at that position from the beater. Um, so I can just make sure it's in phase. Um and it usually lines up so there's no flaming or anything like that happening like a 91 would have versus a tr- adding it to a trigger Um and then um, so I blend those two uh, and then snare top and bottom uh, I'm the kind of person where I try to keep my top and bottom mics for snare the same microphone so it's got the tightest phase coherency Um, so I'm using beta 57 a's on the top and bottom, uh, with the sure a 56d clips specifically. Uh, I find those are nine times out of 10, the best clips for shells. Um, and then Tom Mikes, um, I love, love, uh, a odd d D four. Um, I've been rocking the D fours for a long time. Uh, Brian Campbell, um, when I first started touring before I bought a mic package, um, he let me, me and the Wee car guys borrow his mic package and he rocked beef twos for a long time. And I liked the way they sounded. And I ended up buying some D fours after looking at the frequency graph of them. Um, cause I, I personally hate a D six on any Tom. Uh, I think it sounds wrong, uh, floor or other, um, sorry, any metal guy out there, <laughs> but the D fours sound awesome. Uh, they sound like a, to me a four twenty one, but, uh, the off axis bleed is much more natural. What does get into the mic, like, plus they hypercardioid, so there's less of it. And um, the low end blooms just a little bit more because it has just a tiny bit added at 100 hertz, I do believe. Um, Hi hat um, and overheads, KSM 137s, uh, pretty simple. If I had an alternate, uh, it'd be KSM 32s for overheads. Um, and then I did rock underheads for a long time um, and then it made my snare worse. So if you, do, if you can get away with rocking overheads, uh, overheads are still the best option because snares uh, besides vocal is king. So,
0: so we talked a lot about the, the live sound music side of things. We talked a little bit about studio, um, but what do you do in these days? I mean, we're not, we're not touring obviously because of the pandemic, but what do you, are you still mixing? I know you mentioned you're working with a, Uh, church, but are you doing anything else like maybe corporate side or anything like that?
1: Uh, So I did have my first corporate show uh, all year. Um, I don't remember the name of the company, but we actually had them through the uh, Kentucky uh, International Convention Center. Uh, It was an award show. I did a one system tech for that. we were in the hall A of the convention center, which is like a 350 foot by 120 foot hall, 140 foot hall. Threw up a bunch of DMV, uh T-10s, um, some V-subs with them, uh, some delays with T-10s, M32 at front of house, um, And then, you know, countrymen and some uh, ULXD, uh, both handhelds and lapel mics. Um, So I did that. Um, It's the only show and first show I've had all year, Um, did two days with that. Uh, Like you were saying, and I've said, I've been working for this uh, church um, uh, plant here in Louisville. and um they've been fantastic uh so i've been rocking the wing and then the rcf uh we've been rocking hdl6 for the tops uh and supported a church so it's every week's different uh but i've you know got the system pretty dialed in and it's the 9006s subs from rcf i just put those in a mono front end uh fired cardioid setup underneath the stage um and then um I've been doing studio stuff. Uh, I just got done tracking an album for a band I can't mention because of label things. Um, and then I just did a five day writing session for this band called Cohen off of Modern Empire Records, so which used to be Stay Sick. And then just trying to keep my hand as, as many pulls as possible to get through this thing. Uh,
0: and then, yeah. You're staying plenty busy, it sounds like. That's that's fantastic, especially given all the circumstances.
1: Yeah, I, I'm. I'm honestly real fortunate to um, have had a fairly diverse um, pool of revenue and um, business uh, aspects from the audio industry, um, and I'm just really lucky uh, for that. So,
0: no, no, it's it's awesome because you know you're really diversified in your skill set. You know, you can system engineer, you can do studio work, you can do live sound, uh, music. Uh, You know, talking head type of stuff. So I think that's that's really that's fantastic. It was uh, fortuitous to have all of those uh, capabilities in your back pocket because any anything that we can do to stay busy and, and, uh, you know, not go bankrupt during the the pandemic is definitely a, a bonus.
1: I really feel for a lot of our industry um, specifically because a lot of people have specialized really hard and I've specialized in audio. Um, You know, a lot of, a lot of live guys will do lighting and other stuff. Um, And you know, that's great, but they did specialize into one specific sector of it. And then it's really kind of sadly from our leadership on down has really left us just hanging out the dry. And it's been very sad
0: lots of room for improvement over the past couple of years but hopefully you know we learn from our mistakes and uh, onward and upward so I wanted to ask real quick I know we're coming up on one hour here but the the corporate speaking side of things has me intrigued because i've I've only ever done like you know throw up a speaker on a stick uh, for a friend that's doing some sort of a seminar and you know you give them a, a 58 wireless stick and then you know make sure the vocals are really intelligible what are you what do you find is you know, completely different in that world versus like, say the live music industry when you're mixing a band um, versus you're mixing, you know, a bunch of talking heads and you've got a panel or something like that on stage and, you know, a number of people, what do you, what do you find is really some of the key fundamental differences in that environment?
1: Uh, We're not at a rock concert and we're not supposed to make it 106 dB. I think it's the biggest thing. Oh,
0: that's my first Uh. mistake. Rats.
1: Yeah no, I mean seriously though it's um, if you have a DB mater, um, you know, spoken voices for an award show should uh, if you're reading C weight, um, 64 on the soft side, upwards of 82 uh, C weight. You know, try to keep vocals within that range, depending on the dynamic and flow of the uh, what's happening. If it's an award show or if it's a talking head, whatever they're doing. Uh, and then, you know, try your best because I've done talking heads where I've had a um, person from South Africa with a very thick accent uh, and holding um, wireless ULXD 58 at his belt buckle. <laughs> Uh, that's no exaggeration. And then I've had wonderful speakers that are trained that have, that carry their own countrymen or DPA. And it's, it's, it's the easiest night in the world. Um, but I think just understanding where the dynamic flow of how audio plays into the show, um, or, or corporate event talking head or what have you. And then also understanding, uh, how to, uh, And I'm I'm very lucky where the way I got into touring, and. um, corporate audio is I did work for mega churches and, you know, those are very scene heavy, very dynamically flowing shows. Um, So uh, those help me on both aspects, but understanding if you're at a soft part of a show and you have a PM calling something uh, for an audio cue, knowing where you're at, having your notes and then being on top of it. Uh, it's very different from a rock show.
0: I mean, it's great that you called out that the, that, Like the certain things are very scene heavy because I don't think a lot of folks really take that into consideration. You know, maybe if you've got a really uh, technical artist, you know, in the live music side, you might have a number of scenes that you're rolling through. But I think everybody sort of overlooks the other areas can potentially be scene heavy. So that was an interesting thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, there's some stuff I've done live where I've had 20, 30, 40 scenes, and it's very much almost like a theatrical show. Um, and it's just a part of it. Uh, if it's music, sometimes I've had them that much, and there's been um, corporate shows where I've had 30, 40 scenes easily. Uh, and then I have a full notebook of five pages full of cues, you know what I mean? Uh, and then I'll be writing in my laptop with QLab or iTunes or whatever I'm using at the time um, to pull in stingers, in and out, outros and all that stuff. And just being on top of five different things with the PM and, a you know, um, a clear com on. <laughs> so.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, okay well we're coming up on time here but what is, what is uh, 2021 looking like for you are you hearing anything are you seeing anything what what are you guys looking at for um uh, probably as much
1: as anybody sadly uh my guys are right now they're recording uh a new album um so their focus is on that i think um any rescheduled dates with Danny Wimmer if we're on any of those um you know We'll do those, of course, Um, but everything right now is just late July through potentially September start Um, and we'll see if festivals get canceled or not. Hopefully the vaccine rollouts happen and people get vaccinated. We get the herd immunity up and so forth. Um, I think we're going to see some rocky start with fall um, this year and see what happens. And sadly, I think uh, what's going to happen is it's going to be a level artists and DIYers out first. Uh, cause the mid-level guys that a lot of us work for in the industry are just, there's not the funds that do the regulations that they're going to keep on implementing to do it right. Um, and I don't think insurers and a lot of that stuff are, uh, will be the last of the last back. Um, and it's that sounds very grim, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, right now we're just going to see what happens. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, um, but I'm also a realist on it. And, uh, I think 2022 is, uh, spring 22 baby is just going to be freaking balls to the walls, uh, for lack of better words. (laughs) Uh, uh, so.
0: I think you're right. I did see, uh, I think it was L acoustics posted. I'm date, I'm going to date the podcast here, but I apologize. Um, I did see L acoustics posted an article from the UK about a number of festivals that are scheduled for later this summer. And, they sold something like 170,000 tickets in 72 hours for those three festivals. It was like Leeds, uh, reading and, and, uh, cream uh, cream I think it was. Okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's definitely pent up demand and I think it just all is going to boil down to insurance tolerance and, uh, yeah, the vaccination schedule. I, I don't know. Personally, I don't, we've got touring we're still on the books for may uh of this year which i think is a little optimistic but you know if i'm not able to get vaccinated before then i'm not sure that i want to be out in uh crowds of any size so you know i'll have to do some soul searching there
1: yeah uh coronavirus is not fun um i had it uh when i was in asia oh wow <laughs> yeah um i came back got an antibody test. Um, so I had it crown the empire last year. Um, we were over in Southeast Asia, January 21st through February 9th as I think I got home. Uh, so we did out of LA into Kuala Lumpur uh, and uh, that coincidentally happened uh, the start of the Chinese new year. And that's where all, a lot of chinese nationals take their vacation is in southeast asia malaysia and stuff and taiwan and so forth and, and uh so that's where we were traveling and i ended up getting sick about 5 days in the trip was off and on sick uh until i got home uh spent 5 days in the bed in hawaii um so yeah and then brandon uh ended up getting it after he got back from south africa um from me or someone from in la <laughs> so um yeah it was uh, not a very fun time, especially when you have to do uh calls at six a m uh your time for management back in l a <laughs> so
0: I'm knocking on wood i I've managed to escape it so far, and I hope that I maintain that record but uh you know if it happens, it happens but uh yeah, i just i i hope we all uh get out of this healthy and safe and you know faster than expected, but can't really bargain or uh game mother nature i guess.
1: Yeah, it's just the it's the roll of the dice, I guess, you know, wear a mask, uh get vaccinated if you can. That's the only thing I can say to anybody to prevent it.
0: Yeah. Yep. So. Cool. All right, well, let's call this a uh, a podcast. I really had a blast chatting with you. I really liked all of your stories and appreciate all of your information and uh yeah, this was really fun. So I hope you had a good time and and uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a super
1: fun time for me. I, 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 as you said, I had a blast. It was awesome.
0: Cool. All right. Well, we'll wrap up on that note, and uh, I hope to see you out on the road before too long. And until then, you know, I hope you continue to stay safe and healthy. And I'm super thrilled to see that you're staying busy. You know, that's probably the most important thing. And uh, until then, you know, take care, and and I hope to see you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. And that's a wrap on this episode of Mixmasters. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend. Or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mixmasters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Shure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves SoundGrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for listening.